Welcome to a small, medium, at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate stories that heal. I want to just say I have to express my gratitude to the hundreds of listeners who subscribe to our channel. It's just a wonderful support, and I'm so happy that you're out there. And if you're listening today and it's your first time, please like, please comment, please share, and please subscribe to our channel, A Small Medium at Large. We look forward to having you there. So today, let's welcome from Northern California, our wonderful guest, Lisa Carrillo. I'm going to spell, I'm going to send, say a few things about Lisa in her bio, which I'm gonna to read to you right now. Lisa Carrillo has a BA in mathematics and English and an MS degree in chemical engineering. She has an MBA and continued her graduate studies in divinity and psychology. After 12 years, she left the corporate world to study human relating and sexuality, coaching and leading retreats in this. At present, she is a diagnostic medical ultrasound technician. After three years of meditative practices, Lisa woke up one morning in 2009 with a sense of one flow. She saw her mind had never and could never make a decision. After a few weeks in the state of oneness and complete safety, her conditioning returned, but without its former sense of reality. She found herself naturally investigating and embracing it. She currently has a course and she also has a brand new book that was released this year, Living Awake, 20 Techniques to End, I Got It, I Lost It. So let's welcome Lisa here today. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Gail. It's just a pleasure to have you here. I'm so glad that these podcasts and, and, and being guests on shows has brought us together. And I feel like we're starting a friendship that may last beyond this particular podcast. Yes. So what I'd like to start with today, I have a lot of questions about your book, which I thoroughly loved and I highly recommend to everyone. But before I get to the book, I always like to start at the beginning which is, I read you grew up in a military family. You had some paranormal experiences when you were a child. And I was wondering what about growing up and your life stands out the most you'd like to share with us and what you think in there brought you to this present day accomplishment of a book called Living Awake. Um, well, I definitely had a sense of adventure in my life. And I think my parents cultivated that. So moving around was an adventure. And I think that kind of contributed to sort of my soul's plan. I can remember um, preparing for this life and I've done it many, many times. And I got together some of my favorite kinds of puzzles to live through. And I wanted a life that would start with something sort of rigid and constrained and then get to burst out. And I really feel like that's how I've gotten to live. It's a really fun experience for me to get to, you know, do that opening. So, um, so it really feels like I picked the perfect life, the perfect parents to get to have the most, most interesting adventure. So did you have paranormal experiences during your childhood before you started investigating into the future here? Yes. Um, the, the first, you know, the, I'm going to actually say one experience that I can't say is exactly paranormal, but 
it's and then two others that are. The first one um, was my very first memory. We were living in an apartment. This was when I was about two years old. We went next door to the place where my friend lived and I was headed to the back, back room to play with her. My parents said, no, no, we're just gonna stay in the living room. And I thought, well, you know, why? Why can't we do what we always do? They then visited for a while and apparently they were moving, those friends were moving. And I mentally noticed after a few minutes, oh, well, this was enough time. We could have gone to play. My parents didn't know. And so in my head at that moment, I decided I knew better and my parents couldn't always watch out for me and I needed to strategize. And I remember that moment of deciding I need to strategize. And I think that's what the mental identity does. So I remember that was when I kind of switched into the Lisa identity. That's pretty amazing because two years old, first of all, often in spiritual books and things, they say at around two is when the soul fully enters the body. Some, some say that. And for you to be aware of it entering at that time is a pretty awake thing to know at two years old. Don't right. you think? Yeah, I don't think it's very common. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> there was, um, so then I also remember my parents were Catholic at that time. And then later they were in the charismatic movement and became Pentecostal. Um, but I remember looking at this picture of Jesus with the children. And I knew what that picture was trying to depict. I, and I kind of looked at it and said, uh, that's not quite right. But I remembered it. And I took the picture to my mom and I said, how can I go here? And she said whatever she said. And I thought to myself, oh, she doesn't know. <laughs> but she's the mom for now. <laughs> well, actually, I think this is actually common. And there's a lot of families who end up birthing very exceptional children that are way beyond their, 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 their means. And they have no idea that they've brought this unbelievably special being into the world and their their regular lifestyle they're not used to that sort of a thing i think and i think they even have names for some of these children that come in that i think books have been written about them i forgot what they were called but um i do think that um the person that we are is already set when we're coming through <laughs> and uh you obviously came in with some special special shining stars there <laughs> <laughs> yeah so. I had a little bit more memory that I got to bring with me than most people do. And, you know, just, I can't say I'm more advanced. I just happen to have more memory. Other people, if they have less memory, might feel less advanced, but could be, you know, as if there's advancement. It's not really like that, but yeah. Yes. So um, your parents were then supportive of the paths you were going on because you were doing different things. You were doing corporate, you were doing retreats. Uh, did you find support in your family and in your relationships in the paths you were taking? Um, well, I would say my parents wanted to be supportive at all times. They are very loving people. And, you know, in the Christian tradition, there is a lot of fear. You know, they think if you empty your mind, bad spirits are going to come in and, you know, stuff like that. So, and the sexual training, you know, that's definitely way outside of Christian norms. So um, they had reservations, but they always loved me at every stage. 
And um, yeah, and I had relationships where I was definitely pushing the limits of my partner's ability to hold this new ideology. And um, yeah, I wanted to be gentle as I could to other people because that's part of this me identity. And, and, you know, also just a kind way to be. And yet at the same time, there's this thing I feel, you know, I remember somebody saying to me, um, you know, eventually there's no need for forgiveness. They're like, you don't have to forgive people. You don't have to be forgiven. And when I heard that, you know, everything is so perfect. There's no forgiveness. I thought there is no human that could come up with that idea. Like something in, in me went truth, truth, truth. So I, 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 was, I was thinking that we could move into questions about your book before we describe the book to people. There were two things I read about that you participated in that I would like to talk about first, and then I'd like to go directly into uh, living awake. I'd like to be living awake anyway, but anyhow. <laughs> so I noticed you did different retreats and things like and I'd like to hear about what, I've always wondered what the forum was because it was later on in my, uh, I don't know when that actually even began, but it was when I was way away from Werner Erhard. And I do believe he has something to do with the forum or it sprung out of Est or I'm not sure, but could you give us a, like a little brief history about what the forum is mm -hmm. and um, how that helped you? Sure. And I, I took it in the most perfect time. Um, so it's three days that are, they're long days. I, I think they go like from eight in the morning to 10 at night or something like that. And, um, and then there's a Tuesday evening afterwards. And it just goes through exercise after exercise that keep showing that my thoughts and my perspectives are so limited. They're missing out on big pieces of what I am and what others are and what life can be. And each time it's first, there's the parts where it's like, oh, so I've been squeezing myself or squeezing other people into a box. And so there has to be this willingness to just say, oh, I don't need to do that anymore. And then there's the other parts when it's like, oh my gosh, there's that much more possible. Um, I remember two things. One was the leader, I went up to the front to be one of the people that gets worked with. So, you know, there's a couple hundred people, the leader works with a few and you just get to be in that experience, applying it to your own life. And I said at the time that I need to have boundaries with my mom. And he said, your mom loves you. You're the one withholding from her. And that, you know, that's not how it was registering to me. And, um, then he said, again, because I described a situation that I thought was evidence. And he said, no, she's loving you. Mm -hmm. And it just took me aback because I thought that she was controlling me. And um, I, I stopped because there was that instinct to defend myself. And then I said, wait a minute and stopped. And I just got that all this posturing I was doing was creating the wall and the more I showed up authentically the more the wall would be there and um and then the other thing was I realized that I had been organizing my life 
because I was afraid of not having enough money. And I always had more money than I needed. And I just thought that I could spend my time solving a problem I didn't have, or I could live my life. So it was really, really powerful. And what year did you do that? In 2005, 2004, right in that time range. Mm -hmm. And is that, does the forum still exist today? Is that so there are people that are still, that can take this course today. Yes, I, I just think it's the, one of the fastest ways to be able to pop out of the constraints of our thinking into a place of just full open being. And, you know, somebody had said that to me before, which actually somebody did. I didn't know anything of what that meant. But once I had the experience, I'm like, oh my gosh, how could you live the other way once you know this way? I, uh, uh, in fact, until I read your book, I wasn't sure what you meant when in the subtitle it says, I got it, I lost it. And at first I was like, what does she mean by this? I don't understand what she means. Then when I read the book, I said, oh, I know what she's talking about now. It's the feeling, you know, I've done many, you know, you know how you have sections in your life where you did a lot of retreats and meditation and well, not everybody, but some people. And so I've had different times in my life and for a certain six year period or something, I was doing a lot of retreats and a lot of searching. I think I was in my early thirties at the time. And I used to say, I don't understand. I couldn't like, after doing a 10 day retreat up in Brighton Bush, Oregon, where you were, you know, you were fed these meals and you were doing these uh, techniques and different you know, exercises and things with these, you know, 100, 150 people and you're exchanging all this energy. And you'd come home like this glowing spirit and feeling exactly what you're saying, a oneness with the world and yourself. Then I'd get back home and within like one or two days, all of it would be gone and I'd be back into my regular patterns. I would lose that whole feeling of um, the joy and oneness and I would be stuck back in and I, I, I had to start figuring out a way, I called it reintegration that after retreat, I had to figure how to slowly, gently get back into this other world that was my regular everyday living that now seemed so not as much fun as the oneness feeling. So, I, I mean, I'm not sure, but I have to ask you, I think that's what you meant by that. Is Am I correct? Exactly, exactly. Well, I so I've had that experience many times and you do sort of feel like, so wait a minute, so I did the retreat, I got a lot out of it, but now it's not really sort of part of my life. So, uh, and it would feel like a shock, you know? So I'd be looking at my children and my husband would sort of be like, (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well, because you know, and I highly recommend if anyone has never taken a retreat or never taken a course or anything, try some things out there. You have no idea what you may or may not get out of them. So I, I, I think the idea that there's something after the, the, these retreats that you can keep with you is really a wonderful thing to offer. I, I, I read about your silent meditation retreat, which I wanted to ask you about. And I wanted to say that in all my years of doing different retreats and doing different, you know, and I did ones for the spiritual care of the living and dying and all different kinds of retreats like this, the most powerful one I ever did to date was a silent meditation retreat. And I'm such a nonstop Jewish New Yorker talking kind of a person that when I'd say to people, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna be in silence for, for nine days. 
they'd all just laugh hysterically. And I would too. I, said, I don't know if I could really do this, but somebody offered me a seat. I had cancer at the time. I figured I should do this, you know. Well, what I thought was going to be so difficult to still my mind and to be able to meditate, because we meditated minimum, I think, 12 hours a day. So it was walking meditation, sitting meditation, walking, sitting. It was such a profound experience that at the end of the nine days, I really didn't, I wasn't ready to stop. It wasn't a feeling like, oh, I really need to talk to people now, you know? It was more like, oh my God, this is the most amazing space to be in. And the, the sense of being with my true self and the feeling, I felt incredibly empowered in silence. And I was wondering if you could share your meditation uh, retreat experience and how that affected you to lead you possibly down to writing this book. Sure. So it was with Ajashanti. And um, the, when I was in silence, the main thing I focused on is just the alive being inside of me, just, just enjoying how full and alive and vibrant that is. And so, and fortunately in those kinds of retreats, everything's already set up. You know, you don't have to really choose what you're gonna do at any particular time. So I just relaxed into not doing anything, but just following the instructions. And, you know, I had this idea I was gonna get enlightened. And then um, halfway into it, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna waste the retreat hoping to get enlightened. But forget that, I'm just gonna enjoy it as it is. And then the next morning I woke up and all those thoughts that make me aware of some kind of Lisa here were gone. And without those thoughts, it's just this one movement, everybody being moved together by one mover. And I, I could see how the thoughts that took ownership of decisions were just that. They were racing all the time to come up with the different options that I would do so that whichever one I ended up doing, they could say, oh yeah, I chose that never had my mind made a choice like it had always just flowed through me so then I was like oh my gosh I'm so safe I don't have to do anything I've never actually done anything I've just been pretending all of that and it just stayed like that after the retreat and then of course life comes in my human conditioning came back but what came with the human conditioning was this intense interest because I could see I can't even make up the human conditioning. The one movement makes that up too. And I thought, why would this one movement make up this human conditioning? So I thought, well, this must be part of the experience the one movement wants to have. So I'm going to dive in and explore it and give it that experience. And there was just this natural sense of safety and compassion to just explore. Is that part of what you call the flow? Is that when you were feeling like the flow? Yes, right, exactly. And that's all there is. You know, I can feel that now. That's all there is. We just layer. It's kind of like if there was somebody calling out dance moves or you were watching this intricate dance and then somebody else on the outside starts adding on a story. Oh, they're moving together because they're falling in love and they're breaking apart because they're getting divorced or whatever. But in the dance, that's just how it's supposed to be. They're supposed to go together and come apart and others come together. So that extra story of somebody interpreting the dance is all our heads can ever do. Mm -hmm. 
So that was, so was that then 2009 or, right. and so that's in that experience, that's what really showed you this other path that you wanted to investigate. Exactly, exactly. So then it just came up for the next, I mean, it still happens, you know, there's the conditioning that comes up and then there's the embrace and curiosity. And as that continued over the next several years, what happens in the book is what came out, you know, or the culmination. Yes. I, you know, I, when I speak to people on my podcasts, I've had, you know, different scientists and other people. I'm very surprised at how many of them all meditate. And that even though they might be scientists and thinking on, you know, this linear, whatever, they all, they say, I've, oh, no, I've been meditating for 20 years. I do it every morning. I, I, I just found it very wonderful to hear that all these different remote viewers and scientists I've spoke with all also do meditation. So it's not just for, you know, just, just retreat people or, you know, there's a lot of people that realizing the value of what the stillness of the mind can do for us. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, uh, for all our listeners out there, we highly recommend if you could, you know, they, some people say 20 minutes is enough, whatever it is for you. I find sometimes when I'm doing a certain repetitive task, I feel like it's a meditation when I'm doing it. If I'm working out in a garden or, you know, I'm doing something with food, I, I process a lot of different food. When I do that and I'm just working with the food, I feel like I'm in a meditation at the same time. So it doesn't always have to be where you're sitting on a cushion. You can find meditation places, you know, even in your everyday living. Right. And so, I just yeah. want to add, so many people think of meditation as trying to control their thoughts, but our whole thought system is a system of control. There's no need to try a new control system. It's actually the opposite. It's letting the thoughts be, but being the attention. And the attention actually feels really good when you can just relax as the attention. So it's, it's really a gift to myself to just enjoy being. So it's, it's not really not thinking. It's more about enjoying being for me. Uh, I think that's very good advice. <laughs> so I want to know, why did you write this? And what was your hopes for this book? Um, you know, I really like writing. Not, not so much that I'm in love with words, but I, I just like kind of putting down this, this experience that has just come as such a gift for me. And with the opportunity that others could share it. Because, you know, there's a lot of people, once they have an experience of oneness, they're chasing the good feeling. And the good feeling is, you know, feelings come and go. But what we are has never changed. You know, once we experience oneness, we can look back and see it's always been that way. And right now, it's, it is always that way. So what it is that separates us is not whether or not we have good feelings. It's whether or not we're relying on our interpretation as our sense of reality. So when you stop relying on interpretation and instead rely on being and curiosity and discovery, then you just kind of relax back out of that thing that sort of feels like a veil. So um, I'd really like for people to see that they don't have to chase the good feelings. It's, already here they're already what they want 
so much more simple. So there's a, two words that you use throughout your book. And I was hoping you could give a definition of this, the true being. Yes. Yeah, so um, you know that moment when I was a little girl. And so that was a little lease identity. This lease identity said, other people don't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. And if I figure out how to be smart enough or loving enough, you know, other people choose other things, but then that's going to get me what I want. Mm -hmm. And this structure of, am I getting what I want? Am I being perceived the way I want? All of that is this fake being. Mm -hmm. True being is what we already always are. You know, it's just the life flowing through us. And, um, and that life, you know, it's worth everything. <laughs> I mean, we can't not have it, but we can add on stuff so we can't feel it so much. And that, that life flowing through us, like, um, you know, when I first got married, uh, I had this sort of clingy push and pull sort of attachment that I had yet to work through. And when my husband was leaving to go on retreats and stuff, it was interesting because I could feel the little Lisa clinging, but I could feel being inside me so excited for him. So you, we always can feel that, you know, we can feel what is the thing that furthers life. It's not necessarily what makes us feel safe. It's not necessarily what we were expecting, but there's just this thing that is the expansive thing, that thing that said, oh, forgiveness. Wow, we could not need forgiveness anymore. And then, then that, you know, that was touching into being. That's, I, I've done a lot of forgiveness <laughs> and I've asked for forgiveness. And I find that a very interesting statement to say that we won't, we wouldn't need forgiveness, but it's because we were then viewing the thoughts and situations in a different way so that forgiveness isn't required. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Right. So I want to explain to people, since I've read your book, that it's not just a book to read. It's actually an interactive book where there are 20 exercises to participate in with questions and techniques to help you go through some of this mental uh, uh, gymnastics or things that we're doing in there to try and clear up some of these things. Would that be a correct assessment of what you have here? Exactly, exactly. There's, there's no need to fight that whole mental habit, but there's ways of playing with it that help it finish up its business. That's what these techniques are. So would you like to share some of the techniques or one particular, I have so many here that I put post-it notes on to talk about. <laughs> uh, I, really, I, I really thought what you wrote here, I, I wanted to just share what this, that you wrote here, but because I think this is important for listeners because this might, they might identify with this identifying one's own broken record thought. I know I have a lot of these. Patterns greatly weakens the thought-based identity. By recognizing the ineptness and burden of these endlessly cycling thoughts, we return more easily 
to true being. Each time we notice them, these repetitious thoughts lose their ability to mislead us and instead become reminders to return to true being. Before doing these podcasts that I started in September, I kept saying, why would anybody want to hear me talk? I have nothing to say, you know? <laughs> I'm of no importance. I'm not anyone famous. I think those are the tapes that we're talking about, the thoughts that are... And yet I followed through doing this because I working with this woman, Michelle, otherwise I never would have gotten this far without her and her PR firm, because I didn't have the confidence or the thought that anybody would have any interest. And that was the loop in my head going over and over again. And now I'm seeing these different reactions and comments and things. And now I'm thinking, oh, I might be doing exactly what I should be doing. <laughs> But the tape, if I listened to the tape, I would have never gone that far. But Michelle said, no, I, I think you're a diamond in the rough. I think this is going to be good for you. But I didn't really believe that. That's a perfect example. I love that, that example. So now what would you say somebody, say someone came to you and discussed that with you? What technique would you explain to them to do for that? So um, there's really it we tend to have a couple that are like our own home base and when you meditate you kind of can start to notice what are the thoughts that come through the most frequently and I happened to notice I was reviewing all the times I had been unkind like I was trying to I thought I would make myself more kind by warning myself against repeating any of that and, and also, you know, after I have interactions with people, my mind will go to, oh, did they understand how much I really do care about them? Or did they get offended? Or have I been loving enough? You know, yes, oh my gosh. So um, once we figure out what is the one or two that gets us going, you know, it keeps us like preoccupied and some people it's you know some past hurts that they feel like they weren't understood or you know they're guarding against being offended again you know whatever it is that that is the broken record and every time we insert it into a situation there we are there's a lisa there you know there's a box people shouldn't cross this line or i should be perceived this way and like for me you know am i being loving enough that creates this Lisa, did she get perceived as loving enough? And once we recognize that, then it's kind of silly because it, it doesn't seem to matter what I'm doing. You know, I could have somebody over to fix my washing machine and the same thought is, you know, did they think I was caring enough? I understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I'm not direct and forthright with people because I'm concerned about that right so whatever it is that's our concern it prevents us from just being open and available and spontaneous so once you figure out what's yours like I said in meditation you can kind of see what your thoughts are the most often then kind of choose the opposite and I started telling myself oh you're loving enough 
And it just relaxed the habit. And when it came up again, I could notice, you know, what does that have to do with this situation? Being loving enough, you know, what does that have to do with it? So it's really nice to start to insert the opposite and just watch how the habit, you know, tries to resurrect and crumbles and tries to resurrect and crumbles. It's really nice to not have to be anything. You know, I have two, I have two tapes in my mind that I, I, I also felt like nothing seems like accidental to me these days at all. And I had set out to the universe, I really need to work on my issues of caring about what people say or think about me. And the fact that when I hear certain words, I have an intense crazed reaction instead of just saying, oh, those are just words. But no, I fall into a whole defensive thing and I'm ready to attack. And, you know, <laughs> why are they saying this? And uh, I, I find that, you know, the most important one in that is my particular relationship with my husband or my relationship with, you know, I'm talking about your intimate, close relationships. I'm not talking about people making comments on your website, which I had to get over to in case you see any of those, you know. And I, I was like, I'm willing to accept the negative things, but the positive ones are like really hard for me to take in. So I really want to reverse that. And I'm thinking to myself, how can I change this tape where I just, my body and everything reacts when a person is only giving out words? Why can't I just hear them as words and then say, approach it with a kind and loving response instead of a, well, they've attacked me, so now I'm attacking back. And I really want to get over this one because it doesn't serve me in any way. And it takes me down a whole negative path I don't need to be on. And I would like to be more, if you want to call the word enlightened or whatever the word is, I would like to become more aware and not fall down that same pattern that I've done for, you know, your whole lifetime. Oh, well, so do you have an example of like what they say that makes you most defensive? Um... Let's see. I think I feel defensive when the person thinks that I didn't do the right thing for them or that they didn't understand, oh, I thought I was doing the right thing. And then they're yelling at me that you did the worst thing imaginable. And I'm like, I thought I did the right thing, you know? <laughs> and yeah. so then I become very defensive that, you know, what I mean, am I supposed to be saying I'm sorry? You know, <laughs> I'm always, I'm, it's not like I'm not willing to say I'm sorry. It's, I feel like I have to defend myself, you know? <laughs> Right. So it's not a waste of time. <laughs> so so there's some some part of you that it, you know it has a tender spot about whether or not you've done the right thing. Mm -hmm. And um, is there anything that you could say to that tender part that's afraid of having done the wrong thing? I think it has something to do with, you know, and any everything also I think stems from whatever PTSDs you have from your life chart, your childhood or growing up. So I was in a situation where I wasn't really wanted in the family I was taken into. And um, I was, you know, growing up with lies and secrets and all this sort of stuff. So I think that led me to feel like I'm always inadequate and that I'm always the kind of person that, you know, I have to be better and nicer and do more things for others so that they will like me. 
And I think that's that's where it all originally stems from. And I never like confrontation. Like, I don't want to do confrontation. <laughs> I'd rather just be, okay, all right, let's just go, you know? <laughs> right. But then if I get into the confrontation, I'm ready to, you know, I turn into a, a bull, you know? <laughs> right, but that tender part feels extraneous, not belonging, out of the, you know, out of place. So the that that's part of the identity construction right mm -hmm. and um so i i can feel being and you too like you have this uh you want to protect that part of you like when it worse comes to worse you want to be the bear but you'd like to protect her by just doing everything right then that'll keep her protected but it doesn't work fortunately our strategies don't work so um, of course she's there. You can, what would be like the most kind, loving thing she would love to hear? Do you mean the Gail would love to hear? That little part that gets- The little part, I would say that I, I love and accept you as you are. Yeah, you're precious, exactly. But to can. say those words, the other thought comes in, that's an ego thing. What do you mean you're you're special? You're this, you're that, you're nothing, you know? <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It is. <laughs> right? Because when we give that love, it's it's um, you know, it dissolves that protection. There's whenever I have some disharmony in a relationship or that kind of thing with somebody in my life. It doesn't necessarily mean a family member it could be a friend or I'm, I don't feel good a hundred percent. That one little part of this harmony that I'm having with that person, that thing that hasn't been cleared up, it sits with me continually. And in my everyday being, I'm not feeling like I'm fully whole because there's a part of me that feels there's this un unanswered, disharmonic thing, a miscommunication. I don't want the person to hate me. Do they hate me? You know what I mean? Right. And when you dissolve those, the feeling inside of freeness and of lovingness, it washes it all away so beautifully when you get to that place. But there's so many old tapes and things that come up that we have to deal with. You know, it's like a lifetime of work. <laughs> well, you know, um, so if we focus on getting back to the love and good feeling, you know, that has its own pace, right? But what we can have is a welcome to the little hurt part. Mm -hmm. So instead of, because then there's kind of this little, otherwise there's this little part of it that's saying, can't you grow up yet? Can't you be done, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but that's part of getting to be human. You know, that's part of, wow you know the all in all decided it wanted to see what it's like to be small so that small part is part of the whole experience it belongs here but it doesn't have to make us feel separate from the love instead it can be the opportunity to be the love which is so, really what we are made of right and we think, you know, we're loved so that we can give it away out, but we're loved so we can give it away in 
too. That's the one I have a problem with. <laughs> I'm happy to give to everyone. I'm happy to take care of everybody else. But when it comes to taking care of my own self, that's the hardest job for me. And it's really disturbing me that I should be able to think of myself that this, you know, I was reading in your book, Hallie, the first thing is, you know, honoring and taking care, a good care of your body. And that to me is a very big challenge because I feel like that's, that's not an important being or person. It's better if I take care of someone else. And really we need to take care of and love our own self first. But it is a challenge depending what type of, I didn't grow up with that kind of lifestyle that you had where you had incredibly loving parents. So it's hard for me to emanate that to myself. Right. I can do that to my own children because I don't want them ever to feel like I felt as a child. So I will overly do everything I can for them. I don't ever want them to have pain or difficulties, which is really not good. They need to learn from those things but I felt like a protective mother who didn't want them to have any of the negative stuff that I'd had in my childhood. Oh, of course. <clears throat> but, so when you take a baby step of taking care of yourself, like what would be an example of something you would do that's hard to make, give yourself? Very hard for me to eat, um, to eat more like conscious and properly. I, I, I tend to, you know, like binge or eat. I don't even know that I'm eating the thing. And I know that I'm eating foods that are not good for me, even though I also eat a lot of healthy food. But there's another part of me that likes to eat a lot of sugar and ice cream and things that I know is not good for me. But I can't seem to convince myself. <laughs> I want to really cater more to what my hedonistic wants are more than what's the right thing for my body. So and I'm sure that comes because I was raised in a family of vegans where, you know, back in 1962 and everything was focused on food. So everything had to do with food. So I feel like my relationship with food should be free for all, whatever I want. I don't ever want to discipline myself that way. And I need to figure out how to do that, but with a positive approach, not with a, you're bad, shame yourself, those things don't work. They only make you eat more food. Right, right. So the, well, I mean, for you actually eating whatever you want could be a way of loving yourself. I would not deny that. Mm -hmm. So you, but as you do it, whatever you're eating, you know, you could really deliberately say, I'm cherishing myself by eating this, whatever, and savor it. So you really get the cherishing instead of the escape. Well, that's exactly after reading your book or in the part when I got to that, when I was answering some of the questions, I said, you know what? I'm going to change my view. And when I eat the food that in my mind, the whole time I'm eating, I'm saying, you're a bad person. You know, you shouldn't be eating this sugar. You shouldn't be eating this. You should do that. Instead, I'm going to say, I'm enjoying what I'm eating instead of punishing myself for eating it. And it definitely gave a different shift with the food and with my feeling and I didn't seem to binge after that. Wow. So I thought that was a good, you know, I'm just saying, I'm just finished your book. So I can't say I've had weeks of trying out your techniques, but I'm starting with some of them and I find them very helpful. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, when you try something, if your expectations now all of a sudden you're going to feel oneness or whatever, actually, I, I often feel like there's more growth if we 
more growth. I mean, we are, we're already perfect, right? But we want to be able to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. And it's more that we're willing to be uncomfortable with trying new things. If we're willing to live in this more open, mysterious, undefended place, to me, that is more intimate with this surrendered oneness than is, oh, now I'm happy again. <laughs> you know, what brings about that for me is, and I've noticed you've traveled the world through your life and so have I, and that always brings that for me where you have to let go of what foods you like, how, where you want to sleep, what's the next day going to be? Can you speak the language with the people and communicate where you are? All of that makes you let go of all that past stuff and you go in the flow. Because, well, for me, that's how I have to travel. It has to be in the flow because that's when the magic happens. And that's when all of a sudden you meet a new person in a country and they become your, your friend forever. Or you see a place that stimulates your heart so that you know your soul is where it should be at that moment. And travel has always you know, been part of that, which we've not been able to do now for the last few years. But I do say to all the people that are listening, whenever you have a, a chance to get out of your normal routine of life and put yourself in a place of another country, another kind of condition, another culture, that will be the most heart opening and mind expanding experience. Yes, I and you're doing that when you're eating the food you think you aren't supposed to eat, but you're instead enjoying it without punishing yourself. That is, you've just traveled to a whole new territory that you weren't in before. And I didn't even have to get on a plane. <laughs> a lot cheaper. <laughs> a lot cheaper. So I, I, I'm, I would like to just speak a little bit because we're getting close to our hour. I know that you offer a course. So I was wondering if you could talk about the course, though I, I do have some other things about your book, but I wanna make sure we get the information about this for our listeners and whether it's something you do online or what the course is about and how could our listeners find out about involving themselves in your course? Sure, so at my website, Experiencing the True Self, there's a personal courses section and it's a self-paced 70 video course. And so it's following the same themes of the book, but with each, each video is five to 10 minutes. And the idea is that you would watch one uh, three times, one, one time a day for three days. So you can really get the experience of that video and then move on to the other one, the next one. So you get, if you do it that way, you get seven months or 210 days of course. And there's all exercises. But the idea is that you get to step out of the mental habits and start to play with them, shake them up through the videos and the exercises. And that's enough time to change habits. Because, you know, this way that we have, whether, whether we're people who feel like I have to be planning or I have to be strong. I have, you know, everybody has whatever it is. I have to have things figured out. I have to be prepared. I loved your one on, I have to be on time. And I love the stories with it because for whatever reason, I'm always about 15 minutes late. And I'm so tired of apologizing for the fact that I'm not there at the minute that someone's expecting me to be there. And when I read your thing saying, 
I didn't intentionally want to upset my friend in any way by being late. I'm here because I love them. When I'm reading your technique about it, I said, I have to, that's how I have to reverse it for me because I put myself under so much stress when I know I'm not going to be on time anyway. <laughs> right. Just relieving of that is, a, it's a small little thing, but it's something that, you know, when it gets into your gut and stomach and your whole body's like, I'm not on time. And then all of a sudden things are dropping and you're not really getting, you know, and you get out of flow instead yeah. of saying, I'll be there when I should be there. Not, not when I should, but I'll be there when I get there. And my intention is only that I love you. Yes. I love that. Well, I learned it from your book. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's letting the natural flow be without the extra layer of this should be that, this shouldn't be that. I, I know I've had a lot of shoulds and I've tried, I, I remember it being pointed out to me in some retreat and every time it comes up, I say, oh, remember that? You're not supposed to say should. <laughs> <laughs> Just get rid of the word altogether. <laughs> so right. what else would you like to share with our audience, because we're winding down and I wanna find out what else you'd like to tell them, either about your techniques, your book, your course, whatever you would like to discuss. I wanted you to be sure you'd be able to share with them what you'd like to say. Oh, thank you. Um, well, really just, just the cry of my heart is that if it's stirring within somebody to know themselves as perfect, whole and complete, then that, that is available and it can be all the time. But it's not by fighting with the voices that say otherwise. It's by curiously understanding them. And that's, these techniques are ways, you know, it's not this deep psychological digging into, you know, every single thing that happened in the past, but it's looking at how those things are creating a box of safety. I have this, um, this thing that I like to show. So we tend to want to live in where we're happy getting what we want. And we think that peace and oneness is, is this same box. But once you have this box of what I want, then you also have this box of what I don't want. And so you're constantly bouncing. And in between is where you're actually free. That's where you're in curious curiosity and discovery. And that's what the book is about, really. Just noticing when we're living in a box, what are windows and doors that help us come back into curiosity and discovery and being okay with being uncomfortable because it is going to be uncomfortable to be in the mystery we can congratulate ourselves when we're uncomfortable you know if we're trying to stay in our comfort zone we're fighting against ourselves so when we're back in that curiosity and discovery then we get the opportunity to touch back into the mystery that we are, that infinite, um, infinite being that is alive with no effort, with nothing to prove, nothing to justify. I know I felt that a few times, that space you're talking about. The idea of being able to feel that more often without going on a retreat is a very wonderful thing. So I, I wanna congratulate you on doing a really good book to help people. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you, Gail. I just, you live curiosity. <laughs> you live knowing the mystery. You have the conditioning like we all have. But the, the being in life is obviously just carrying you along and you're having a blast with it. You know, I feel like my father used to, when my father was dying and, uh, you know, you're very frail in that kind of dying condition. And I came into the hospital to see him laying in the bed. And he said to me, you have too much life force energy. I can't handle it right now. <laughs> I, I was kind of hurt, you know, but, not, but then I understood what he meant later when I was in a weakened state and how it was really hard to have an intense amount of life force energy when you needed a, a really very subdued type of energy at that time. So I feel like the life force energy is similar to the flow that you talk about or being in that, you know, I call it the life force energy. I... Um, what did I have here I wanted to ask you last about? Oh, so that's all on, uh, we're good then on our book. We're good then on that they know that they can take a course if they like, and it's online. So it doesn't matter if people are, you know, home and not traveling now. Right. I would like to end, if there's anything else you want to say, but I would like to end reading something I thought was very important at the end of your book. So are we good? Yes, that's great. Okay, so what I'd like to read, uh, it's something that Lisa titles Seven Steps to Peace. And the reason that I want to read this to you is because we've been living in such a stressful time right now that I think these are really good words to keep in our mind and thoughts about Seven Steps to Peace. Disarmed, without effort or manipulation, I tune into true self. Two, suffering is caused by believing my thoughts and can be relieved by questioning my thoughts. Three, I am the space through which experience passes. I love that. Peace is my natural state. Four, I sense that which takes delight in each moment, even when my personality may not. Five, I open to that which requires nothing beyond what is given and engages without attachment. And six, I allow myself to live from the space of, I don't know. And seven, I relax as the living pulse of being as the essence of experiencing. I want to leave that with you listeners, because I feel that's some very good, important things to, 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 to think about. I, I, I suggest you check out Lisa's course. I suggest you go to Amazon and buy her book like I did. And uh, uh, I look forward to having another future conversation with you because I feel you have so much to offer. And um, I hope our listeners enjoyed our show today. I hope they'll subscribe, like, comment, and try some of these exercises. So remember, stories can heal. So share your stories today. Thank you and have a wonderful week. Bye.